How much does it matter if Christians live together before marriage? This is part three. I, all, I feel like I need to say, if you're here and maybe you're visiting, what you're witnessing is an irregularity in our church. I think our people would all nod and, and tell you that. We typically go right through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. We're doing that tonight, Sunday nights through Malachi, and we'll do it here. This is a four-week kind of an interruption. It's just a subject that I felt you can judge, I, I think, the Lord put on my heart. It's, it's so neglected in the church. I don't think you make friends necessarily teaching on it. I'm repeating some things that I said last week. I'll tell you right now, and it's not a mistake. I want to reemphasize a few things and close in a different way. The title this morning, Make Sure the Minister Isn't Cheating You Out of Something Precious, at your wedding ceremony. Make sure the minister isn't cheating you out of something precious at your wedding ceremony. Instead of a text right now, I have three quotations. Four. Dear friends, we have come together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together Don and Rini in the bonds of holy matrimony according to the ordinance of God, the custom of the Christian church, the law of this land, and to pray on their behalf the blessing of God. That's how our wedding ceremony, if you're married here at Cedarview, that's how it reads. If you don't like that, get married in a different church. Two. Marriage is an honorable and holy estate instituted by God, sanctioned and honored by Christ's presence at the marriage in Cana of Galilee, and likened by St. Paul to the mystical union which exists between Christ and his church. Quote number three. It was ordained of God as the foundation and bond of family life, for the mutual help and comfort of husband and wife, and for the welfare of the state. Quote number four. Marriage is therefore not to be entered by anyone lightly or carelessly, but thoughtfully, and then this old word that doesn't get used much, it's a good one, thoughtfully, reverently, and in the fear of God. We've been considering the faulty logic behind the astronomical rise in cohabiting relationships. Well over half of all marriages are now preceded by cohabitation. Well over. According to the cohabitation reasoning, unsuitable marriage partners are weeded out by what's called the natural deselection of cohabitation. Over time, unreliable potential marriage partners are discovered and eliminated, the idea being that eventually Mr. or Mrs. Wright will emerge, all will be well, we will live happily ever after. And we spent two weeks, I'm not going over all that again, studying a lot of available evidence 
from non-Christian sources to see that that is not even close to the truth. Brad and Angelina don't live happily after just because they've lived together for over a decade. The authors of the National Survey of Families and Households conclude, quote, after reviewing all available studies, the enhanced risk of marital disruption following cohabitation is beginning to take on the status of an absolute empirical generalization. That's big words. In other words, the fact that cohabitation is harmful for future marriage has become an absolute. That's what he's saying. It's like the law of gravity. And please take note of that final blunt sentence where he says, quote, no positive contribution of cohabitation to marriage has ever been statistically found. Like, wow. This is by atheists, by the way. This is not uh, focus on the family or something like that. Nothing good. That's what it says. No positive contribution. Nothing good, not ever, zero evidence of good, and that's a purely secular conclusion, nothing even remotely religious about it. Strangely, that evidence is, I mean, I just, working on a sermon, dig up all sorts of stats. It's available to anybody. Somehow, the evidence shows that none of these facts has diminished the rapid growth in cohabitation as an alternative to marriage. I mean, the change, I'm going to say something that will surprise you, I think. It did me. Did you know that as recently as 1970, now I know for a lot of you here, you can't even imagine going way back to 1970. As recently as 1970, all 50 states had a law forbidding couples to live together outside of marriage. Did you know that? That's, that stunned me. It was against the law in every state to cohabit unmarried in my lifetime. And there was no voice raised at that time that these laws were unjust or unreasonable or discriminatory. It was just common moral ground. Now, all that is uh, long gone history. Cohabitation is now obviously dominant. So back to this. It seems strange to me that even all the statistical evidence doesn't prevent people from doing it. And the question I want to look at briefly is, why not? Why don't intelligent people, Christian or unchristian, at this point I'm not even distinguishing, why don't intelligent people say, well, this doesn't look like it works? Why doesn't the obvious statistical evidence reach the fallen mind? And there is a biblical reason for that. Our hearts, just as the Bible records, are, Jeremiah 17, 9, 
deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. And there's an order there that I want you to notice. Deceitful above all things. That's, that's A. B, desperately sick. Some translations will say desperately wicked, just depending on which translation of the Bible you have. Those are striking words, I think. There, there's biblical revelation entering the picture. Our hearts are not just deceitful. It says our hearts are deceitful, these words, above all things, above, at the top of the list. Deceit is at the top. Above everything else, our hearts are deceitful. In other words, unaided by divine truth, our hearts are deceitful first of all. The power of deceitfulness in the heart is greater than the power of truth in our minds. Did you get that sentence? The power of deceitfulness in our hearts is greater than the power of truth in our minds. So pile up all the evidence you want, Pastor Don. It's not, it's not, it's not going to reach my heart. Hear me at this point, church. Only the Bible is going to tell you this. This is where the wickedness and desperate sickness come from. Deceit is the root. Wickedness is the fruit. And the fallen heart's deceitfulness manifests itself primarily in one thing. The heart dilutes the, deludes sorry, the will to choose things contrary to God's revealed will with the dream that in my case my choice will be better than God's command. And while others might not escape the consequences of disobeying God, I I think my case is, well, it's just different. I won't reap what I sow. I have three general umbrella principles with which I want to It was a long introduction, so don't panic when I say point number one. Three principles. Next week, I'm going to conclude with uh, studying some texts and a a much different emphasis. So point number one. All cohabitation is destructive to marriage because it reinforces the low-commitment ethic that will be brought into any future marriage a low-commitment ethic that will be brought into any future marriage. This principle is absolute. The reason there is such a thing as cohabitation in the first place is marriage requires something that at least one of the cohabiting partners doesn't like yet. That's the only reason cohabitation exists. Cohabitation releases the couple from some aspect of marriage that is presently either feared or resented. What cohabitation gives that marriage doesn't, well, it's pretty simple. It gives an easier out. Cohabitation is based on the easier out. 
except in some pretty involved cases. Usually, I know it's not absolute, usually there aren't very many legal or religious processes to go through. If the relationship is great, we continue. If it's unexplainably hard, we don't have to continue. It seems the best of both worlds is, is just available. But there's a catch. The catch is the blessing turns into a curse. The option of the easy out doesn't just exist as a remote potential. It actually weakens the relationship. We've already seen a lot of the statistics. I'm not marshalling them again. Cohabitors and their relationships five times more frequently than married couples. There's only two ways to interpret that data. Only two ways. First, you can say cohabitors are just more unlucky than marrieds. But after a while, after a while, as the same statistics continue to mount, it's about as logical as saying heavy smokers are just more unlucky with lung cancer. The second way to interpret the vastly more frequent termination of cohabiting couples is to recognize there's something in the relationship itself that tends toward disintegration. And that something is a low commitment ethic that's in the very nature of cohabitation. And my point is simply this. Cohabitation trains future marriage in a low commitment ethic. There it is. Cohabitation trains future marriage in the same low commitment ethic. Point number two. The covenant of marriage provides the commitment mechanism to push back against the easy out reflex of cohabitation. The idea I start with here is basic. Marriage grows love in a way cohabitation cannot grow love. When there are no outs in the relationship, the couple is forced to work things out that they wouldn't had the option of cost-free quitting been available. When you work through things together, you come out loving each other more deeply. So, so deep love evaporates in an easy out relationship. So while couples may feel they marry each other because they fell in love, the deeper truth is marriage is the place where love is forced to mature and grow up. Love needs marriage to grow. Vows, love needs vows to grow in the same way muscles need a gym to grow. And that brings me back to those statements I read at the beginning of this message, all from the marriage ceremony that we use in our church. And the idea I want to drive home here is it matters the way a church states marriage vows. I mentioned this last week. I want to repeat it. It's not just a matter of style. I mean, I realize ceremonies, all ceremonies, change with the passing of time. Terms fall in and out of use. I don't have a problem with that. It's all fine as long as the meaning 
of what we're doing at the wedding isn't reduced or the seriousness of the vows isn't diminished. And that erosion of depth happens, it happens gradually, and I think, to be fair, I think it happens unintentionally. I, I, I don't do very many of the weddings anymore. I used to do tons. I'll tell you something. Churches always want to please brides and grooms, especially brides. Families are in the church. You don't want people unhappy with their wedding experience. And as tastes and styles have gradually become less formal, more geared to a breezy comfort than maybe expressing the seriousness of the vow's grip, small changes in expression arise. That isn't the topic of this teaching. But let me provide one, for instance, again, to make my point. There's a world of difference between a minister standing at the beginning of the ceremony saying, dear friends, we've come together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together Don and Rini, the bonds of holy matrimony, according to the ordinance of God, custom of the Christian church, the laws of this land, and to implore on their behalf the blessing of God. That usually isn't said quite like that anymore. Usually, in trying to be a little more warm and a little less formal, minister will say something like, Good afternoon, everybody. Don and Rini are just so glad that you're here to celebrate their special day with them. I don't know what that is. My point isn't that there's anything wrong with being warm and less formal. Those are totally fine in their place. My point is, what I just showed you, is that just a style change or now has something else happened? And I think something else has happened. Something very important has been left out that I mentioned last Sunday. And because it's left out of the ceremony, I think it's become vacant and foreign in the church's corporate understanding of exactly what's happening that lovely Saturday afternoon at that church's wedding. I know I mentioned it last Sunday, but I want to repeat it for emphasis. In the second warm contemporary greeting, there are no witnesses. Look again. Dear friends, we've come together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses. That's how it used to be said. So who are these people? Who are these people that are sitting there in these seats who have arranged their summer Saturday, postponed cutting the lawn, put on their best clothes, canceled a trip to the boat or the cottage, missed a round of golf at the country club, and have been patiently waiting for 30 minutes because the bride is late and they're sitting there. Who are these people and why are they sitting there? That's a, an important question. Well, note, in the contemporary greeting, I'll tell you who they are, they're guests. Thanks for coming to our special day. In the formal greeting, they aren't guests. They're witnesses. They might be guests at the reception, 
but at the church, they're not guests, they're witnesses. We're gathered here in the sight of God in the presence of these witnesses. Why does it matter? Why on earth do we need all of these witnesses at a wedding? Well, we need witnesses because somewhere along the way, the minister's going to say, for richer, for poorer, better, for worse. And things can get a lot worse. Just ask some of the people. Things can get a lot worse. And when the worst comes, one or both might change their mind about staying married. And if they do change their minds, if they come to resent the idea of staying together, there needs to arise a voice, maybe a hundred voices, who will cry out and they'll say, wait a minute, Don, Reenie, I was there. I took a bunch of my time. My wife made me buy another suit just to come and listen to your ceremony. I was a witness to what you people promised. I heard you say, vow that you would stay with your spouse until one of you is six feet under. I didn't invite myself to your wedding. You asked me to come. You asked me to come as a witness. Now, don't ask me to pretend I didn't hear you promise what you promised. Now, can you stop people? Well, of course not. But, but the truth can ring out. I say it again, make sure the minister isn't robbing you of something precious at your wedding. Point number three, a biblical rejection of cohabitation will not have moral strength until couples grasp the God-given meaning, I'm sorry, of sexual intercourse. doesn't get talked about a lot, let's face it. The universal perception outside the church and increasingly in the church is the meaning of sexual intercourse is a God-given means of the expression of love. And I'm here to tell you it's not. It's not. It's considered... In general culture and in much of the church, it's considered the moral high ground that sexual activity isn't just spread around like cats in an alley at night. You don't just give your body to someone in the act of sexual union until you're sure this is the one you love. That's viewed as the high ground. It's the common understanding of virtually every sitcom, every movie, every romance novel. All sexual relationships are the expression of love, and then they become romantic and beautiful, and the strings of Dr. Zhivago are playing soothingly in the background. It sounds so noble, it's increasingly difficult for Christian people to grasp that this isn't even close, not even in the ballpark, about what the Bible says about sexual intercourse. This, I'm sorry, but this is a ground zero truth. You have to contend for it. It's an absolute basic point of biblical revelation that cohabitation is always going to be sinful because it can't possibly be otherwise, even in a very loving cohabiting relationship, because that's the argument you're going to get. 
And that's because sexual intercourse isn't the God-given covenant sign of love. Sexual intercourse is the God-given covenant sign of marriage. It's irrelevant when a cohabiting says, you know what, we have a better relationship than a lot of married people I know. I've heard that all the time. You don't know how much I love so-and-so. Unless this truth is rubbed deeply, repeatedly into our minds, there will be nothing to hold back the natural inclinations of a generation that is statistically waiting longer and longer to get married. 29 is now the average. And it's going to take a lot more than cold showers for brides and grooms to walk down the church aisle with their virginity intact. It's going to require a rich, biblically-based understanding of the meaning of sexual intercourse as it relates to the vows of marriage. Is it okay to talk about that Sunday morning? Okay. Do your parents know you're here listening to this stuff? To every married person in this room, your wedding represents, it's not just an illustration, that's not what Paul says, it represents in miniature. Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. And he didn't redeem you on a whim just to see how things might work out. He's locked in. I have one text to read and I'm done, promise. It relates to a lot of things, but I want to relate this to what we're talking about this morning. John 4, 13 and 14. You know the story of the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the well that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life is not just the time in heaven, like a long, long life. It's a nature, a kind of life, eternal life. There's something so important in that text that is, I think, frequently missed. And I want to relate it to the endless cycle of cohabitation. But it relates to a lot of things, you'll see. One of the evidences of not drinking deeply enough from Jesus is the instability of constantly moving from one thing to the next. Seeking to fill the void. Those who don't have a well of water within are forced to look for water without. When that spring dries up, They'll go on to the next relationship, the next job, the next hobby, the next car, the next house. Those who have drunk deeply from Jesus, those who, who live where they are with God, 
They're free to stay. They're free to be satisfied. Because they have a well of water right there. All of this to say it, it ties to your walk with Jesus. You can't just separate living with someone and then go to church and think that everything's going to be fine there. It, it, that's not how it works. Pray with me.